In 2010, British Prime Minister David Cameron made a diplomatic blunder on a visit to China. He was there hoping to develop commercial ties and activity between China and the UK, but there was a snag. When he met with Chinese officials, he had a poppy pinned to his lapel. In November, the poppy is used to honor the war dead in Britain. It's a tradition of theirs. But for the Chinese, it's not a welcome symbol, especially when worn by an Englishman. For them, the poppy is a reminder of the opium wars fought between China and England in the 19th century, both of which China lost. Cameron and his team resisted requests from the Chinese government to take off the flower. And in the end, they came away with deals that could be described as modest at best, but certainly disappointing. Now, in our passage tonight, we're going to see a pretty significant diplomatic blunder, I'd say. It ends up much worse than David Cameron's uh, faux pas. Paul will be sent into the temple to put on a show for Jewish believers in the Jewish community. And instead of everyone clasping their hands and singing, Kumbaya, my Lord, a violent riot breaks out. As we read, it's clear that mistakes were made. But who made them? Was Paul wrong to participate in this effort? How might the church have dealt with this brewing controversy? And how do we dwell together in unity when we do come from such different backgrounds and traditions and heritages and live during such a time of unrest and agitation? As we start in on the text, we come after a long journey through the empire of Rome, and Paul has arrived in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 17. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. What a great thing to see this warm embrace from the Christians there. Uh, Paul hadn't, since he became a believer, hadn't spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, and scholars think it's probably been about 20 years since he's been there. And uh, last time he was there, there were a lot of mixed feelings about Paul. But this is a great thing to see. He was welcomed as a brother. And we notice he was welcomed as a brother, not as a celebrity, right? He was welcomed as, as one of the family and in a warm embrace. Paul had been warned again and again that suffering and imprisonment were waiting for him in Jerusalem. He knew it. But as he finally entered the city after a long trip, he didn't do so looking over his shoulder in fear. After all, he felt compelled by the Spirit to come. His heart was burning within him to get to Jerusalem. And so we see as he comes through the gates, he wasn't freaking out. He wasn't bracing for impact. But that doesn't mean it was easy either. Remember, he had said to his friends, dear friends of his, who were trying to convince him not to go to Jerusalem, he says, hey, you got to stop. You're breaking my heart. I can't have you weakening my resolve to do what God has asked me to do. I'm sure by this point that Paul was pretty convinced that his race was going to end in martyrdom. Uh, it seems like he thought so. He, he said that to the Ephesian elders effectively. He says, I'm never going to see you guys again. This is going to be it for me. And so with the Lord as his strength, he pressed forward uh, into the unknown, uh, like Elsa did, right? He pressed into the unknown, but knowing that he was uh, headed to some trouble for sure. Matthew Henry reminds us, of how Paul had strengthened other Christians out on the mission field by encouraging them to continue in the faith and telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It wasn't something that he just preached, 
Uh, it certainly wasn't a marketing slogan to sell Christianity to people. Uh, it was something that he practiced and it was something that is true. And so we shouldn't think it's strange when we are faced with trouble in this life. It has been promised to us as Christians that we will face trouble and trial, difficulty and suffering. And so we should expect and endure it and remember that one day we too are gonna finally cross the borders into the new Jerusalem to be forever in glory with our Lord. Verse 18, the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. It seems that none of the 12, or at least the 12 who were left alive, were in town when all this happened. Uh, they're not reported. Paul's habit when he came to Jerusalem or back to his home church in Antioch was to give a report of all that had happened on his missionary journeys. He also had his gang of eight with him, remember, guys like Luke and Timothy, and then representatives from Gentile churches who had all pooled a bunch of money together as a gift to the famine-starved Christians in Judea. On the one hand, it wouldn't have been unusual that the elders were all assembled here, but we're going to see that they most definitely had an agenda for this meeting. Uh, they had been meeting uh, lots and lots before Paul showed up and said, we need to deal with Paul. We need to ask Paul to do something. So they have a plan in mind, something that they've been working out together. Sadly, they're going to behave in a way that feels a lot more like the Sanhedrin than the disciples in the upper room. I mean, if you compare what's going to happen here with what we've seen previously in Acts, it feels a lot more like Peter and John before the Sanhedrin kind of being put on trial than it does all the believers in one accord experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's a sad thing. Now, usually uh, here at Calvary Hanford, we actually try hard not to criticize decisions that believers make in Scripture when, it, when it's a gray area right? Um, especially the disciples, the apostles, you know, in the gospels, it's a famous thing for Bible commentators and Bible teachers to just, just thump on the apostles and the disciples all the time about how dumb they were and their feet are in their mouth all the time and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff and how, you know, they should have known. And yeah, none of us would have done any better, right? That's like saying, if I was in the garden of Eden, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Yes, you would have. You probably wouldn't have lasted as long as Adam and Eve did either. So, you know, we try hard not to criticize uh, and we try hard to be gracious when things are kind of left up in the air. That is when it's not overtly sinful or when it's not commented on by the word. Plenty of times in the scripture, someone will do something and then the word will give comment on what God thought about that decision. We don't exactly see that here, but there have been lots of moments in Acts as we've gone through these chapters where commentators want to point fingers or lay blame or, or you know, kind of draw a line in the sand. For example, when Paul and Barnabas had their famous dispute, who's wrong, who's right? and who, who messed up and who didn't mess up. Uh, and this is another one of those areas that commentators like to throw mud on one character or another. Now, unfortunately, I'm just gonna say for myself that it's, it's hard for me to find much that is redeeming about James and company's behavior and decision-making here. Their plan is going to be a complete, absolute, abject failure, a complete failure. The, the exact opposite of what they think is going to happen is going to happen. And so I, think it's, I don't think we're in bad territory to say that their plan did not come from the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so it's just going to be a complete failure. 
Their methods, we're going to see, are downright political, not spiritual in this scene. And so we want to take a gracious approach when we read passages like this. It does seem like they are making a pretty significant mistake in this scene. Let's look at it. Verse 19. After greeting them, James and the elders, Paul reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul gave a very thorough account of everything that had happened. Scholars indicate that's what the language being used is saying. Astonishing things, world-changing things. We've been going through these things, and uh, he would have reported many more things than even Luke reports for us, right? I mean, this is years of ministry, and sometimes Luke covers over a bunch of years in just a couple verses, and so he's reporting all of these things that are happening. And we notice the very careful choice of words here, what God had done among the Gentiles. It wasn't that Paul was the perfect minister or that their methods were the perfect methods and that's why there had been success for the church. It was God working through them to accomplish his purposes. And so as a big takeaway, as you read the book of Acts, if Acts teaches us anything, it's that... It should be that God has opinions and that he has plans for what he wants to do today and all over the world and in whatever city we find ourselves in. It's not our job to decide what we think Hanford needs when it comes to ministry or Lamore needs or Riverdale. They're beyond help in Riverdale, but... (laughs) It's not our job, right? Christians do this a lot where we look at the city of Hanford and you say, what do we think Hanford needs when we can't help but use human metrics, human measurements, human intuition, human methods to say, what does Hanford need? I think it needs X, Y, or Z. And a lot of those goals uh, are honorable and good. And some of those goals may even overlap with what God does want to do, right? God does want to address needs and and address people where they're at, of course. But it is not our job to decide what we think Hanford needs or what method of ministry is most effective. Our job is to discern the will of God and make ourselves available to it. That's the job, right? Because we are to abide in Christ. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he accomplishes the work. He gives the direction. And so, one of the things that you hear a lot of times if you, you know, listen to conferences or go to them or if there ever are conferences ever again, but people talk about we need to engage culture, and that is a buzzword for we need to develop more modern techniques and methods in order to be something more palatable to millennials or more hip-sounding or you know, update our messaging, those sorts of things. And that's not the job. That doesn't mean we don't engage culture, whatever that means. Uh, But our job is to abide in Christ and to be full of the Holy Spirit. And then guess what? He covers the bases pretty well. And we are conduits for the supernatural work that he has already decided he wants to do in our midst, in our city, in the world, right? Because if you use human reasoning to decide what God needs to do in a community, then Philip never meets the Ethiopian eunuch on a deserted road. Never happens. Peter never goes to Cornelius's house up in Caesarea. Never happens, right? Those things never happen in the human boardroom because it doesn't make sense. Why would we ever do that? 
Who would go to a ministry strategy meeting and say, we have this incredible revival happening in Samaria. Who would have thought that the Samaritans were going to get saved in droves? This is amazing. Let's take the guy in charge and send him to a deserted road. He's going to have to go through Jerusalem where there's widespread violent persecution. We'll send him by himself to walk through Jerusalem and just camp out in the middle of the desert. Let's do that. No one will ever, 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 ever suggest that. And if someone did suggest it, no one would agree to it. They would say, that's stupid. And in the meantime, God is saying, that's exactly what we're going to do. And that act is going to lead to widespread revival and awakening in Ethiopia, right? So what's the job? The job is, what does God want me to do? And how can I be made available to it? And so think of the difference between Abel's offering and Cain's offering in Genesis. Cain's offering was his idea. And you know what? I'm sure it was lovely from the human perspective, and it had taken a lot of care and effort and planning and toil and all of that stuff, but it wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't what God had prescribed, and so God wouldn't accept it. And so the question we should ask is not, what do I want to do for God? The question is, what does God want to do through me? Because he does want to do something through your life. And that's his business. And now our business is to figure out what that is. Verse 20 says, when they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed? And they're all zealous for the law. So James and the elders, it's not that they're completely callous. I mean, when I said that what they're doing is kind of like the Sanhedrin, I'm not trying to suggest that these guys are backslidden or that they're not believers or anything like that. I mean, these are wonderful men who love the Lord. I think they're making a collective mistake here. But it's, you know, it's not that they're apostate or anything like that. How could you not give glory to God after hearing Paul's report? hearing the amazing things, the ways that the, these Gentile cities were being redeemed for Jesus Christ. But we see they start to tip their hand here. Uh, they immediately pivot away from what God had done in this uh, dramatic work that we're you know, going slowly through in the book of Acts. And, and they move to a subject that they have clearly been discussing at length among themselves. Have you ever been to a meeting like this? Maybe you or someone shares at length about some issue or initiative or plan, and then the people in charge say, yeah, yeah, great, that's great, but what we want to talk about in this meeting is budget cuts. And everything that you've said or that person has said is immediately just kind of put to the side or into the dustbin, and this is what the meeting's really about. That's a bummer when that happens. G. Campbell Morgan points out that there's no recognition even of the generous gift Paul and his friends brought with them at their own peril. Right? I mean, they, maybe they did, but as far as the story goes, they don't even say, and hey, by the way, thanks for bailing us out because we're starving here and you guys went into your own pocket to bring this money to strangers. Uh, there's, not even, there's not even a moment of gratitude for that. In fact, throughout this whole scene, these guys don't even acknowledge the Gentiles standing right there before them. What did Luke say at the beginning? He says, we, us, we went in before these people. They don't even, they don't even talk to them. They're just talking to Paul because they just want to talk about Judaism and legalism and the Mosaic law. It's like these other guys don't even exist. And that's a sad thing. And it's because this group of elders has become completely distracted by traditionalism and their own heritage. And what follows, we'd have to say, is a sad cave to legalism and bigotry and man-pleasing. They begin by saying, Paul, we've got this problem. It's you. You're the problem. 
Uh, and there are just so many people, so a lot of people, lots and lots and lots of people who agree with what we're about to say. This is a red flag, just so you know. When a, when a Christian comes up to you and say, hey, a lot of people have been talking. Okay, well, who are they? Well, just I can't say, but a lot of people. Okay, that's just a red flag. You know, I mean, we're called to openness and forthrightness and straightforwardness as Christians. If you actually have an issue with a brother or a sister, you're supposed to go and speak to it directly and say, hey, here's what's going on. None of this fake, like, there's a lot of people. You know, everything's teetering, and I can't tell you about who any of them actually are, but there's a, a large, you know, crowd of people behind the curtain that, you know, I'm here representing. That's weird. And then they go on, they say, and all of these people, they're zealots for the law. That's the word that they're using, zealots. Now, there are a couple issues here. First of all, since when did being a Mosaic zealot become a good thing in the church? That's what they're talking about, zealots for the law, like, like Jewish zealots. Uh, and second, this is a huge generalization. Obviously, there were many, many Jewish Christians who were not hung up on the ceremonial law the way that some in Jerusalem were. Paul is a good example. Barnabas is an example. Aristarchus, Silas, these are guys that did not have problems going and rubbing elbows with Gentiles and doing things that would have made them ceremonially unclean. This was a lesson that God had to teach Peter specifically. He says, don't you call anybody unclean or impure. Don't you do that. And he goes to Cornelius' house and he says, yeah, I'm not even allowed to be in your house, just so you know. Oh, anyway, you want to hear about Jesus, right? And so it's not that all of the Jews in Jerusalem were hung up on it. There was a faction of Jews. We call them Judaizers, or earlier in the book of Acts, they're called like the party of the Pharisees. They were believers in Jesus, but they were completely hung up on this Mosaic ceremonial ritual law stuff. And it's not everybody. They're completely generalizing here, and that's not a good thing. And so James and the elders, though, are drawing a line and in fact, they're building a barrier between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and this is not a good thing. We know it's not a good thing because an entire book of the Bible is going to be written to Hebrew believers telling them to stop being Hebrew in the way they approach the Lord, right? That's what the book of Hebrews is about. No, no, don't go back to these laws and rituals and rites and all these things thinking that the law of Moses is somehow going to make you um, more pleasing to God. That's... that's that's not what the Lord wants. But here we see that the leaders in Jerusalem at this point in time have become completely partisan. Now, back in Acts 15, with the first Jerusalem council, a very similar thing was happening, right? That there was a group of, of Jewish believers who said, hey, we do not like what's going on regarding Gentiles and them entering the church. They need to be circumcised. They need to do the ritual law. They have to become Jews first and then Christians. And way back in Acts 15, with the first Jerusalem council, the leaders there were able to resist the pull. But we see here, it seems they've slipped and now are being dominated by this legalistic sectarian mentality. Uh, they've, lost, they've lost some ground. There's been sort of some erosion in their ability to say, no, we're not going to give in to this uh, attitude of legalism. Verse 21, but they've been informed about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. 
This is such a sad statement. Now try if we can. I mean, we can't even imagine what it was like to be Paul, the things he went through. I mean, the, the daily sufferings and struggles. The guy who died more than once for the cause of Jesus Christ, right? He's being beaten all the time. He's being robbed all the time. He's hungry. He's getting all his clothes taken. He's shipwrecked like a billion times. And he's like, I just want to tell people about Jesus. A guy who could sincerely say, I'd be willing to trade my own soul into hell if it meant the Jews could be saved, right? And we believe him. He's not talking hyperbolically. I mean, and then to stand there, and this is what they're saying to him. This is what you're doing, Paul. We heard, this is what everybody's saying. It's such a sad thing. And they're generalizing again. You teach all the Jews this stuff. And they're saying, everybody's been gossiping about you. Have you ever been to something like that where somebody comes up to you? Everybody's been talking about you. Yeah, talking trash about you is what they mean, right? I mean, that's not a good feeling. I mean, even worse than that, what they were saying wasn't true. Listen, every Christian who knew Paul knew this wasn't what he taught. Every Christian. Maybe not strangers, but everybody who actually interacted with Paul, who received ministry from Paul, who was a friend of Paul, everyone knew that wasn't true. And he was on record on the, all of these issues about the law, about circumcision, about the, the, you know, the traditions of Moses. He was on record. Romans had already been written. The letters to the Corinthians had already been written. In these sorts of letters, he deals specifically with the law, with circumcision, with all of these things. And we know what he says there. Paul's views on the law are clear in those letters. Now, of course, the printing press wasn't around yet, but we do know that his letters had some level of circulation. We know that because when Peter writes his letter, he says, hey, you guys know the things that Paul writes. And he says that they are the word of God. And he says, you know, stuff Paul writes is kind of hard to understand, but it's inspired, right? So we know that these things were not secret. They had some level of circulation. It was also public knowledge that Paul had Timothy circumcised in adulthood so that he wouldn't offend Jews that they were trying to evangelize. And so anyone who knew Paul or heard of Paul or actually had any kind of true reference of Paul uh, including James and these elders, knew that these accusations were completely made up. But notice what they say there at the end. These are our customs. Uh-oh. I think they're showing more of their cards here. Each of us come into the church with a certain heritage, certain background, certain affiliations. But as a Christian, what you are is a Christian. You're not a Jew first. You're not a Gentile first. You're not an American first. You're not a libertarian first. You're a Christian. That's what you are if you've been born again. You've been blood-bought into the family of God. You are a new creation. You belong to a new kingdom. You have been united with brothers and sisters from every corner of the globe in the church universal. And if your customs divide you from others, then it is the custom that should be discarded, not a barrier built between you and the others, right? Now, these Jerusalem Christians were poorly prioritizing their affiliations in this situation, and because of it, it was causing a lot of tension when Paul came to town. So what should be done about it? Let's see what they think. Verse 22, so what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come, therefore do what we tell you. Okay, hold there for a minute. So they're about to unfold this plan, but notice here the way they're going about it. Paul, all the Jewish believers are just freaked out because they've heard you're anti-Jew and, and there's, we gotta do something about it because people aren't gonna be able to handle it other, otherwise. Uh, 
First of all, that isn't true, that everyone thought Paul was some anti-law fanatic. Remember what we read in verse 17? How was he received? With trepidation? Did people say, is it true, Paul? We heard, we heard that you're trying to destroy Moses and you want to burn every copy of the Old Testament that you can lay your hands on. They didn't think that was true. He's received with warm welcome, with a full, open-armed embrace by the Christians that we see there. So already what they're talking about isn't true. They're saying, they're all, they've all heard, and it's going to cause this huge problem. We know that's not true, because he did show up, and it didn't cause a huge problem. The fact of the matter is that they were Judaizers in their midst who wanted Christianity to be tied down under the law of Moses, and Paul stood in their way. And this was a theme that dogs Paul's ministry pretty much from the beginning. That group was just as mad as they had been back in Acts 15 while they were trying to keep Gentiles from really entering freely into salvation. But in response to the gossip, the church leaders say, okay, everybody's gossiping, they're telling lies, everybody's completely freaked out. Paul, you're gonna have to do something about that. What? If it was so easy for people to hear news about Paul being in town and his arrival and his activities, then why didn't James and the elders just spread the message that, hey, what you're saying about Paul isn't true. Stop it, right? So they're saying the telephone network is everybody's gonna hear. As soon as you're here, everybody's gonna hear and they're gonna disseminate all this information. Okay, then why don't you disseminate some information through those networks? Why don't you call people together and say, stop it. Stop telling lies about the apostle Paul. We know Paul, here's what he teaches. Get Peter over here. Peter, why don't you talk about what God has said about grace and the Gentiles and being under the law? They didn't do that. While all of the gossip train is going, they kind of clearly just sat back and did nothing. And then when Paul shows up, they said, well, you're gonna have to clean up this mess. You're gonna have to do something to convince people that you play ball. That's a pretty sad thing. What's more biblical here? to tell people the truth or to put on a show hoping people will see you and see that you want to please them? What's a more biblical thing to do? Just to tell people the truth. Because this is what the plan is being laid out here. Paul, we're going to need you to put on a show, put on a performance to try to convince people that the lies they're telling about you aren't true. Here's how they thought it would go. Verse 23 continues. We've got four men who've made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. Then everyone will know. I, I don't know. I guess I just think this is a pretty sad scene. If it was so easy that Paul could walk into the temple and do this thing, and then everybody in Jerusalem, all the multiplied thousands of people who were all freaked out by you know, Paul existing, if they would all find out immediately, why didn't they just call a meeting together and say, this is what's true? But they didn't do that. We've seen the church in Jerusalem called together before, right? Haven't we? We saw that in Jerusalem 15. We've seen it at other times. Get people together. We've got elders here. What are you guys doing? Go talk to people and say, hey, here's what's really going on. I know you, you, know, you Jewish believers are really tied into your traditions and customs, but here's the truth. Here's what's happening. Here's what Paul has really said. Here's what Paul really does. Here's what men like Paul and Timothy have been willing to do in order to preach the gospel to Jews out uh, in the pagan Gentile world. Why well, put on a show? Man, there are so many problems with this plan. First of all, its goal is to seek the approval of man. Second, it sends the message that purification comes through ritual and sacrifice. And everyone in that room that day knew that that wasn't true. They said, go purify yourself. 
Yeah, he is pure. I'm pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a scam, is, what, <laughs> is probably what poor Paul was thinking at the time. Uh, Jesus had said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. He said that in John 15 while he was still on the earth. Jesus had said to Peter specifically, don't you call anything unclean or impure that I have made pure. And so this sends a really bad message. Third problem, they asked Paul to pay the fees for these four men. This would have been an expensive thing. It was hard to find exactly because they're not exactly sure what vow it is, but it could have been like four rams and four lambs, right? I mean, this is an expense and fees and stuff like that. Paul didn't have any money. Are you kidding me? Paul didn't have anything. He's working all night to support himself and the other guys that are with him so that he can preach during the day. He's like making tents while he's like all crippled and goops coming out of his eyes. The dude, he's getting robbed every time he goes out on the road, right? He can't just dig in and, oh yeah, I have a bunch of gold for rams and lambs and things like that. He doesn't have any money. They're putting this huge financial burden on him to pretend that he still believes in the ceremonial law so that people who hate him won't have to be rebuked and corrected for spreading lies and gossip. That's what's going on. So James and the elders here are like, there's this trouble brewing. Everybody's talking trash. We would love to just kind of sit back. Why don't you do all of this? You take care of all of this, and uh, then we won't have to say anything. And these people who hate you and who want to tie Christianity under legalism, then they'll be happy. Gross. Jack Arnold writes this, the leaders in Jerusalem, fearing a division, accepted the philosophy of peace at any price. Listen, God calls us to unity, but he doesn't do so at any price. These leaders were wrong to indulge gossip, to refuse to defend the apostle, and to use worldly methods of manipulation to try to appease legalists. They hadn't needed to do all this nonsense back in Acts 15. Effectively, the argument is the same as it had been in Acts 15, right? It's about the law and grace and Gentiles and Jews and how all of this is going to relate. This is a hard issue, to be sure. I'm not trying to pretend like it was an easy thing for everyone, but effectively, the same problem had happened many years ago and for us six chapters ago. And they didn't have to do all this song and dance back then. Why? What happened then? Well, back then there were a few men who were courageous enough to stand up and say, no. Paul, Paul had said, hey man, I, let, let's talk about grace. Let's talk about what God is doing. And he was holding the line on that. And then what happened? Peter got up and said, hey, this is what's true. And it may be hard for us. It may be uncomfortable for us, but I'm here to say no. And he stood up against this tide of legalism. And that was needed again here in chapter 21, but this time no dissent. Peter's not there. These other guys aren't there. And this group think of sort of partisanship had taken over. Some commentators call this plan compromise. Some call it prudence. They say it would have been too difficult to expect lifelong Jews to abandon their heritage and the rites and the ceremonies of the temple. Yet we remember that Jesus Christ called his disciples to leave their nets, to leave their tax booths to leave father and mother and follow him. Do you still have a heritage once you become a Christian? Of course you do. But that background, those traditions are never to have their hands on the rudder of your life and ministry because you are a new creation in Christ. You are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Speaking to us, Jesus said, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world right? So you have a background, you have a heritage, you have traditions. Those things are never 
in the place of decision-making or the place of interpretation over what God has said or what God has commanded. Verse 25 says, with regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. If I had been in Paul's position, this would have hurt a lot. Uh, it assumes that he had not been teaching these things effectively in those Gentile churches. All those Gentile churches you just told us about, we're gonna need you to go back through them and give them the, you probably didn't teach them how to Christian right. And so you're gonna go back through and teach them you know, what we want you to teach them. Uh, and then think of what it would have felt like to be one of the Gentiles standing there in that meeting who were thinking, what is going on right now? Uh, yeah, I know how to not be sexually immoral. Thanks, James and the elders. I, I, I don't need a letter from guys I don't know <laughs> to be told how to do this. I'm, I, I'm following after the Lord. Plus, we see a flaw in their logic. So think about it this way. A simple written note would be sufficient for all the Gentile world to know the truth, but they couldn't handle spreading the truth through the Christian community in one city, Jerusalem. There's no way for us to just tell the people What's really going on? You're going to have to do this and that. We're going to have to do all these things before man. And we're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to pay and you're going to have to do all of that. Whole Gentile world, sure. We'll just send one note. We'll send a memo. It's such, it's such a weird thing that's happening. We also note a contrast between Paul's sharing in verse 19, where he talked about what God had done. And then the words that James and the elders use here saying in verse 25, here's our decision. And so not a great day. Verse 26, so the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each one of them. Why, oh, why did Paul go along with this? Some think he was deep into sinful compromise. I don't think so. Some say he was simply trying to be all things to all men. I think that's closer to the mark. Of course, we can't be sure of what was actually going on in his head. But listen, we know that Paul was a humble man. He was a man who was willing to lay down his life to reach people with the gospel. He was a man ready to sacrifice his own liberties to do ministry. And we know that he knew he was going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, right? He knew it. I kind of think it's, it's pretty possible that he was able to be at peace with this scheme, not because he agreed with it, but because the Lord had given him a certain amount of prophetic revelation about what was going to happen. He knew chains were coming. He knew arrest was coming. He knew it. Maybe he was thinking to himself, so that's how it's going to happen. These guys are going to send me in here, and I know what's going to happen. He's not a dummy. He's been in this situation too many times to not know what's going to happen when he goes into the temple and draws attention to himself like they want him to. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For a guy who preaches against Judaism in the temple, not sure why he's offering you know, fees for a Nazarite vow maybe in the temple, but what, 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 what place does logic and reason have in this situation? None. So the literal opposite of what the elders wanted happened. They had planned this grand gesture of legalism and it completely backfired. Not only had the Jerusalem elders put Paul in a bad position, they didn't even help him once he was in it. Where are they in this scene? They're so worried about this potential rift in the church, and they're not even there to be part of the fix that they had come up with. 
They're so worried about was this supposed division, but they're nowhere to be found. I think that's a pretty sad testimony. A simple lesson here is that when we try to apply human methods to ministry, the result will often be the opposite of what we wanted and the detriment of people. Whether it's in fundraising or outreach or messaging, let God lead. He has opinions, he has leading, he has a plan, let him have his way. We don't need worldly techniques because worldly recipes do not produce spiritual fruit. Verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So it's a baseless assumption altogether, but note, not even the four guys finishing their vow vouch for Paul. He had probably been in the temple with them all week. When we give in to bias or prejudice or legalism in our minds or in the church, the result is destructive. That's what we're seeing here. Of course, it goes both ways. In this case, Jerusalem was clearly dealing with an anti-Gentile bias, but so much of history of, in the church has been plagued by anti-Semitism, right? I mean, it goes both ways. Today, our culture is obsessed with everyone grouping up and identifying who's us and who's not us, right? I'm this kind of person. I identify as X, Y, or Z, right? And let's all group up in very specific groups and then say, well, and you're not. You're not this. I am this. You're not that. That's not what we're supposed to do in the church. Don't give in to that. It's detrimental and destructive to ministry and ultimately can be deadly to people. Verse 30, the whole city was stirred up. The people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. John Phillips wrote, what did James and the others think of themselves? We wonder. They apparently did nothing to secure Paul's release, nothing to speak on his behalf, nothing to appeal to the Jews of Jerusalem to give Paul fair play. They sent no one to the Roman authorities to assure the commander of the garrison that Paul was innocent of the charges leveled against him. And so this is a sad chapter, not only for Paul, but in the history of the church of Jerusalem. So what might we learn? Well, we, if we find ourselves in Paul's position, if we put ourselves in that spot, we see from his example, wonderful selflessness, humility, a willingness to lay down his rights. He knew he was where he was supposed to be because the spirit had led him to Jerusalem. To be sure, the situation was a painful one, but as usual, he demonstrates that grace is the way. In uncertainty, in conflict, when being mistreated, respond with grace. It doesn't mean we compromise with sin, but we can choose to humble ourselves and bear the fruits of patience and peace and grace even when we are the ones being wronged. If we find ourselves in James' position, we should learn from his example that sometimes our responsibility is to stand up for the truth even if that makes us unpopular with our peers. We see the dangers of placing heritage over conviction. We see what happens when we cling too tightly to the approval of man or the traditions of man rather than the grace of God. On a wider level, we also learn two general but important things from this passage. First, we should take away the understanding that the church is not co-equal with Scripture. For example, in Roman Catholicism, church tradition carries equal authority with Scripture. We see even here in this case, the church decision wasn't the right one, not even a little bit. And so we are fallible. The church is fallible. Leaders are fallible. Scripture is not. So it is the authority on life and godliness and how to live out uh, our faith. And that leads to a second takeaway, as pointed out by Dr. H.A. Ironside. It is a comfort to see that even apostles made mistakes. Listen, we're going to make mistakes, mistakes in ministry, mis mistakes in our faith, mistakes in our interpersonal relationships with others. We're going to offend one another. 
Hopefully it doesn't lead to anyone's false imprisonment, but we're gonna fall short at some point in time. Uh, And you know what? God does not discard us when that happens. We shouldn't be like, okay, phew, I don't have to try. That's not the case, but we're, we're gonna make mistakes. If James is making a mistake and the elders here, I mean, these are men who love the Lord, who knew the Lord, who were spirit-filled, they made a mistake. God didn't cast them off. God didn't say, all right, I'm done with you guys. And when we make a mistake, there's forgiveness and there's grace. And for us, grace is the way forward. Clinging to what has been revealed in the scriptures is the way forward. And so let's move forward, not in fear, not in traditionalism, not trying to win the approval of man, but forward in grace as people of the word, doing what is necessary to follow God and be used for his purposes.